When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how can war criminals be brought to justice? In the aftermath of recent wars, international courts have offered victims a place to tell horrific stories, called perpetrators to account, and aim to end impunity for those behind mass slaughter and many humanitarian disasters. In the 1990s, the United Nations set up temporary tribunals to try those responsible for atrocities in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. Then, in 2002, a permanent court came into being in the Dutch city of The Hague. The International Criminal Court is a theatre of justice where powerful military leaders and politicians accused of heinous crimes face a reckoning in the context of due process often elusive in their home countries. In its 20-year history, the ICC has convicted ruthless tyrants, including the Congolese warlord Thomas Lumbanga and Laurent Bagbo, the former president of the Côte d'Ivoire. And although 123 countries are signed up to it, the notable absentees are the big powers, the US, China and Russia. That, critics argue, creates a patchwork of accountability. Nonetheless, the courts are a model for international justice, And it's the unsung work of the ICC's interpreters, on whose translations and nuances of language the fate of a trial can rest, which inspired my guest, the Japanese-American novelist Katie Kitamura. In her latest book, Intimacies, Kitamura's protagonist finds herself at the centre of a political and moral quandary when she's asked to interpret for an alleged war criminal. The novel explores the pliability and persuasiveness of words, dispensed to defend the most gruesome acts of barbarity. It's a theme on all of our minds, as the withdrawal from Afghanistan raises troubling questions about the Taliban's record and the legacy of America's military intervention too. Kitamura's cool and considered way with language has won her fans stretching from literary luminaries, including Salman Rushdie and Karl-Uwe Knausgaard, to US presidents, Barack Obama no less, named Intimacies as one of his favourite books of the summer. So how does she see the power of words in the quest for justice? Katie Kitamura, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much for having me. Intimacies is a story about an interpreter who moves to The Hague to work at the International Criminal Court and is assigned a job translating for a fictional former president of a West African country who's on trial for war crimes. So as a story, it doesn't really stray too much from the jagged edges of reality. What prompted you to tackle the subject? 
I think the kernel of the novel really came to me over a decade ago in 2009 when I was listening to the radio and they played a clip of Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia, speaking at his own trial in his own defense at The Hague. And there was something that was so troubling to me about the experience of hearing him speak. He was grandiose and he was monstrous, but he was also compelling. And he had an incredible facility with language in particular, this ability to kind of do these rhetorical flourishes that as a fiction writer, as a novelist, is both compelling and troubling to to witness. And of course, as you say, this turns on how people describe themselves as, as, as defendants on and on how prosecutors describe what happens from their, from their view of the prosecution. It's the second book you've written about translating language when there are high stakes. What draws you to writing about that profession? I think I'm very interested in fictional characters who kind of act as vessels or channels for language. And one of the things that interested me about this narrator is that she really thinks of herself at the start of the novel as a neutral figure. She thinks of herself as a cog in the machine. She thinks of herself as a kind of instrument of the court. And all of this language passes through her. But there are, in fact, both psychological and moral questions that open up for her about this proximity to language. The language moves through her, but it also does leave a trace. And simultaneously, she also leaves a trace on the language that she speaks. It's impossible for her to fully remove her own experience and her own consciousness from the language that she is working with. Let's put that in the the more dramatic context of the International Criminal Court in The Hague. You spent time researching then, observing the interpreters who were working during a trial there. That was Laurent Bagbo, the former president of Côte d'Ivoire, who was charged with crimes against humanity. Let us in a bit, if you could, into the world of interpreters working particularly with the constraints of the court and the responsibility that that brings to be even-handed, when language, tone, everything to do with it is intended to sort of, to to lead you one way or not lead you another. I'm really interested in that. So the court in the novel is loosely based on the International Criminal Court. And as you say, I did some research there and I attended about a week and a half of the trial of Laurent Bagbo. And during that period... I observed the trial, but I also had the opportunity to interview a number of interpreters. And I think before I met with these interpreters, I think I thought of interpreters as not too different from translators in their basic affect. I think I thought of them as as being quite clinical, as being very, very precise. And it was when I met them that I realized that, in fact, they were necessarily performers. They had to transmit not simply the literal meaning of the words from one language to another, but they also need to to capture, as you say, the affect. So if something is said ironically, they need to be able to convey that those words are not to be taken at face value. But of course, as you say, the stakes are incredibly high. One of them told me a story about somebody who had made an error and that resulted in the testimony being thrown out and they were not actually able to recapture that witness testimony and it was struck from the record. I think there's also incredible psychological pressures on interpreters. I think the work that they do is physically exhausting. It requires a great deal of precision and also very rapid judgment. And I think the subject material is difficult. Talking to these interpreters really helped me kind of shape the the emotional journey for my character. Intimacy is, is in a sense, a, stra- a strange kind of 
title, isn't it, for a novel that turns on war crimes tribunal? (laughs) (laughs) I think the pluralisation of the word intimacy is very important to me in in understanding the title. When I finished writing the book, I I went back and I realised that the novel is actually full of multiple examples of sexual harassment and sexual intimidation. And I think that makes a lot of sense. It's a novel that's concerned with power and the different ways that people choose to exert power. But it made me think about the different kinds of intimacy that there are. And I think there's a tendency to think about intimacy as if it is always a desirable quality, as it's what we're told to seek in all our relationships, our personal relationships in particular. But I think as I was writing the novel, I began to ask whether or not it could at times be unwanted. And there are many, many instances when the narrator does not desire the intimacy that's being forced upon her, whether it's in attention from certain people or even the proximity that she has with this former president figure who is based on Lohan Bagbo. Even even that is a kind of intimacy that she doesn't seek. And I think possibly a related word would be empathy, which is, again, a word that we're taught to hone our sense of empathy. I have, I have children, we're constantly told that we want empathetic children, but actually what happens in this novel is that she starts to experience empathy as something that almost dissolves her sense of self. It puts her into a morally troubling proximity to some of these figures. That's a very good point, I think, for you to give us a flavour um, as a short reading from the novel, which which deals with that point. I think she says at one point she has the unpleasant sensation of all the people in the room, the former president on trial um, for for war crimes is the person she knows best. And perhaps you could give us some of the atmosphere of that. There was a certain level of tension that was intrinsic to the court and its activities, a contradiction between the intimate nature of pain and the public arena in which it had to be exhibited. A trial was a complex calculus of performance in which we were all involved and from which none of us could be entirely exempt. It was a job of the interpreter, not simply to state or perform, but to repeat the unspeakable. Perhaps that was a real anxiety within the court and among the interpreters. The fact that our daily activity hinged on the repeated description, description, elaboration and delineation of matters that were outside, generally subject to euphemism and elision. One of the fictional interpreters you cite says he has no compunction whatsoever when refusing to translate testimony of a young mother whose children were murdered because it's too painful. And that's a quandary I kept returning to here, but it's one that we we come across, I think, increasingly when we have so much more material that is unmediated and can be very distressing. Some people will find it distressing, some will find offensive, etc. Is it possible for interpreters to distance themselves from what they're translating? And, And what do you think the kind of quandaries are for them? I think it's probably necessary for them in order to do the work that they need to do over sustained periods of time. The question of witness is is a very complicated one. And it's one I thought about a lot in this in writing this novel. There's both the compunction and the moral responsibility to witness. And I think there's also the question of being very aware of what you are bringing as a mediating force or as a witness, because, you know, one of the points of the novel, I think, is that it's impossible to utterly divorce your own subjective position from the material that you are either interpreting or writing about. I thought at that point that I might have even popped up as a minor character in your novel for the following reason. I I have some experience of this. I defended a libel suit against a war criminal 
um, someone subsequently convicted called Dragan Vasilyov, who was a Serbian mercenary involved in atrocities uh, during the collapse of Yugoslavia. And he was trying not to get sent to The Hague and using legal routes to hold it up. And, and what this case turned on in a nutshell was, did he really understand the English that he'd used when he said to me that he was intending to commit a massacre? It sounds like something probably most listeners will say it's not something that crosses their mind unless they have fairly serious intent. But you can also see a case for the defence that he could have been saying something else or he could have been saying he didn't, that his English wasn't good enough and that came up. That was a very strong case for the defence and it, it made me realise how much we think that words are something that we, we kind of all agree on, but they're not really, are they? And that, that's another area where the interpreters are part of the nuance of the way that language is judged if it, and when it comes to trial. Absolutely. And, and as you say, this kind of question of the gap between languages, which is fundamental and in, in that example you were citing, I think that's something that is on occasion exploited by, by both sides to some extent. Certainly, I think the interpreter I was speaking to felt that there was what could be construed as an error in interpretation, which led to this testimony being thrown out. I think the question of whether that was actually done as a kind of device rather than simply an clerical error was was certainly alive. I was interested to know why you chose to make your character on trial for war crimes from, uh, he's an African, he's from West Africa, rather than from another continent. Are you simply following the kind of cases that do actually come to fruition and get heard and even convicted at the International Criminal Court? Or did you have a particular reason for focusing your attention in that region? I wanted to think very particularly about the cases that were coming up before the ICC and similar institutions, in part because I wanted to think about how institutions function. And of course, you know, it is very hard not to notice that the vast majority of cases that are tried in the ICC are of leaders of African countries. That is simply a fact. There are a lot of reasons for that, including questions of jurisdiction. Of course, there's the fact that the United States has not signed the Rome Statute and therefore it cannot be tried for war crimes within the ICC. But I think one of the things that I wanted to try to do is ask whether or not there is bias within institutions and how that bias is formed. And I don't think that's a question of individuals within these institutions, but simply they work in relationship to other institutions and to other government bodies and there is a consequence to that and so that was certainly something that I was thinking about and it, it comes up in the novel the people who work there are kind of told this is a instrument of neocolonialism and all, all, all this kind of thing you know that that position is articulated and I think the narrator is made to ask who is on trial and why why is that so and at one point, the former president says to the narrator, you must see the justice of this court is far from impartial. You come from a country that has committed terrible crimes and atrocities under different circumstances. Your State Department would be on trial here, not me. Well, there's a little bit of me. And as you can tell, I come from a background of covering some very unpleasant characters who are just quite happy to see anyone go on trial, really, if they've been involved in, in war crimes and, and to debate the definition of genocide. That thinks that this may be a kind of moral relativism that, suits people to question the nature of the court. I get the impression you feel that there is uh, something more to this argument, that it is a bit partial, a bit unfair even. The moment when that happened is a moment of, I would say, shallow manipulation on the part of the former president of the central character. It's intended to be a reference not only to the fact that she's American, but also the fact that she is Japanese. Um, and that was partially because I wanted to think about what it meant to be Japanese 
American, not simply in terms of the structural racism that as an Asian American you experience, but also in terms of the quite complicated and naughty history of Japan. I always remember I grew up in California and a lot of the kind of curriculum that you learn in school is about internment camps for obvious reasons. But I remember very clearly my mother, when I was learning that curriculum, also said, you know, there are other sides to the history of Japanese aggression in the Second World War that you also need to be aware of. And so that was intended in thinking about how this own character is implicated in the institutions that she serves and the history that she comes from, I wanted to kind of tie that in a little bit. So I I think absolutely there's, there is a danger of that moral relativism. And that is something that the former president is very deliberately exploiting in this moment. At the same time, I wanted to think about, and the book is in no way intended to be a criticism of the international criminal justice system. I wanted to think about the fact that it was an institution And I think particularly as an outsider, you can often think of of an institution like the ICC in almost wholly reverent terms. And I think I wanted to think about the gap between justice as an ideal and how it is necessarily carried out by its institutions. I I agree with that. And I thought that was a really fascinating thing to, to explore because, of course, the sort of headline figure on this is the ICC set up to deliver justice after terrible things have happened in a country cannot dispense its own. One should say that, you know, it does acknowledge that it would be better carried out closer to the ground. It's heard 30 cases uh, since uh, 2002 and convicted nine people, as as you reflect, most of those are from the African continent. But you do point out uh, both I think uh, yourself and in the novel, America is not a signatory. How can we really have an ICC that it can do its work if America isn't signed up? If we're never going to get, I think, I shouldn't say never, if we're unlikely to get a situation in which a former Russian leader is arraigned for events uh, in Ukraine or Belarus at the moment might be a great example. Do you still have faith in it? I do. I think... It has the ability to bring attention to a situation. I tend to believe that institutions can and do evolve, and the ICC is a very young institution. Perhaps that's extremely naive of me, and I I admit I am quite naive in these matters, but I, I think I have to believe that they can function and they can be effective. I was curious to know what what your feelings were on that issue. I think my starting point's not a million miles away from yours. I think these are valuable institutions, whether it's the the one that I'm more familiar with, the International Criminal Tribunal that prosecuted people from a theatre of war that I'd covered and seen uh, many of the horrors in the former Yugoslavia. It seems to me there are reasons why the big powers don't go into them, because as soon as you project force in the world, and unless you're someone who thinks that that's really inherently a bad idea, you would end up pretty much never out of the ICC. So I, I'm a bit conflicted by that as well. I, I think that it's a, it's a very difficult one. If you want it to work very well, I think it's always going to deal with small and medium-sized powers. Yes, I mean, it seems almost impossible to imagine a world where those powers do sign up. You're a bit of a globetrotter yourself, global citizen, originally from California, lived in London for a decade. Different weather, got to tell you. <laughs> Now you're based uh, in, in, in New York. So that is really interesting to me is what, whether that also facilitates your interest in fish out of water scenarios. And, and I wondered if that was something that attracted you from your own wanderings. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I grew up as a child of relatively recent immigrants to the United States and my parents moved from Japan to the United States and I think I was born three years afterwards. So they were new arrivals and they were not fluent in English. I grew up in a household that was initially speaking only Japanese and then increasingly both languages and then ultimately primarily English. So I do not feel myself to be firmly oriented towards a single culture. You know, the other thing I would say is that my parents moved back to Japan after spending about 20 years in the United States. So they don't have the classic immigrant narrative that we often see in the United States where somebody moves and they set up roots and then et cetera, et cetera. In fact, they wanted to go back to Japan. They were only in the United States for a period. And I think that sense that the narrative is not absolutely secure or set is very, I'm, I'm very, much writing toward that, I think. I feel quite comfortable living in that way between cultures or with cultures overlapping over themselves. But I, I do admit it, it, at times it feels like a vulnerability rather than an asset in that you, you, you have the sense that you may not have the depths of, of history or, or, or connection to a place that you might want. But you know, for the most part, I, I experience it really as a pleasure and a way of opening up the world. Your husband's the British novelist, Harry Kunzru. You said that he's the most trusted reader of your work and you do show each other your work as soon as you've finished it. That's something I think uh, divides many of us who are writers in a different way. The idea of handing over this prized possession <laughs> to, and getting that look. <laughs> Obviously, it works well uh, for you uh, uh, and Harry. Do you... Do you really tell each other the unblemished truth when you read the first draft? I I think we have to, because otherwise the worst thing is if you let your partner put something out into the world that is really much less good than it could otherwise be. I think one of the saving graces of our of our marriage probably is actually the fact that we write in very, very different ways. I mean, the honesty is is necessary, but you become very sensitive to a particular wiggle of the eyebrow or a little bit of a grimace, you do find yourself wondering, what does that actually mean? That little tension around the mouth, is that actually, or what are you trying to tell me about my manuscript? So I would say that the, the kind of hour of getting feedback, you are really scanning the other person's face very, very closely and trying to pick up as much information as possible. I think we've got to get Harry Kunzer on and hear what it's like <laughs> from the other, the other half. <laughs> I mean, one thing that I think we both experience is that novels are, as you say, they're such private things and they're things that you work on, books, all kinds of writing that you work on by yourself. And it is always a startling experience after three or four years where you don't actually know what the other person is writing because we don't share work in progress. Then to suddenly have a kind of 400 page document that details everything that your partner has been really thinking about for many, many hours of the day is, is always a kind of startling and often very wonderful experience. I, I'm having a whoa, whoa, back up moment here. So like for four years, <laughs> four years you go into your yes. study or wherever you work and you don't tell your other half what you're working on. No, we don't. We don't. I think we're both relatively superstitious and we worry that talking about it too early can can kind of break it apart. And there have certainly been circumstances where we both started to talk about the novel and then, you know, taken a couple steps back and said, well, I'm just going to work on it. So yeah, it's, it's a moment for me that's a real pleasure because obviously I think Hari's a really exceptional 
novelist. Most of the time, I appreciate him as a partner who empties the dishwasher and picks up the kids from camp and all those things. And so it is actually wonderful after, you know, literally years of not knowing what he's been working on kind of creatively and artistically, then to say, oh my gosh, you've written this brilliant novel all that time that I thought you were just upstairs eating cookies and drinking tea. You were actually making this wonderful thing. So it's, it's a moment that I look forward to and I always enjoy. But you'll have to have him on to see what he says. I think he's just booked himself a, a, a slot. That's a really interesting in, insight. I should say before we let you you go, you do have a another a sort of exercise in toughness in your, in your life and the mental discipline, as you say, those four years of writing something that you don't even tell the person you're married to about. But do you have a background, I can imagine, is rather conducive to that as a ballerina? You also practised mixed martial arts and have written uh, fiction based on that. So if we had asked you to choose... On your well-appointed desert island, what are you going to do? Are you going to continue to practice your plies and pirouettes? Or are you going to see some martial arts? What are you taking with you? I would continue to practice my plies, I would have to say. You know, I very recently joined Instagram, which I had never been on. And everybody talks about how Instagram opens up all these anxieties about, I don't know, about lifestyle and all of this. The hole that I fell down was watching ballet clips and I just had hours and hours and hours of just watching these remarkable artists and athletes at, at work. And, and it holds a fascination for me that just really doesn't go away. It's, it's lasted for many, many decades. And it's actually something that I've been thinking about writing about in the future, for sure. OK, I think we're going to send you the leggings for that. <laughs> Katie Hitamure, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And we'd love to know what you think on any of the subjects or the quandaries that we've raised along the way in our interview today. And do you agree with Katie that keeping your work life completely apart from your partner is the secret to marital bliss? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. If you're looking for more inspiration on which book to pick up next, well, our books and arts team is dedicated to sifting through the pages to find the best new releases. You can find their recommendations on our website and why not become a subscriber while you're there? For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.